0: Welcome to the Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain you, inspire you, and inform you about all things running. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. We are very excited about this week's show. We are going to preview the very first episode of Season 3 of Human Race, our sibling podcast, which airs this Tuesday, April 11th. Then in the kick, why you trail runners should be on the lookout, unfortunately, for more ticks this year and a recap of what might be the hardest race in the world, the Barclay Marathons. But first, we bring you something terrific from our archives, a conversation I had with Boston Marathon legends Alberto Salazar and Dick Beardsley on the 30th anniversary of their epic 1982 duel in the sun. The pair talk us through what they were thinking and feeling in the final miles of what was perhaps the greatest race of all time. That's coming up. Thanks for joining us. Back in 2012, I got the unique opportunity to speak on stage in front of a live audience to Alberto Salazar and Dick Beardsley. It was at the Boston Public Library the day before that year's Boston Marathon. And we were there to celebrate the 30th anniversary of Alberto and Dick's famous race, their epic stride-for-stride battle from the starting line to the finish tape of the 1982 Boston Marathon, dubbed soon thereafter as the Duel in the Sun because conditions were warm on that day. Some consider it the greatest Boston Marathon ever run. Writer-at-large John Brandt first wrote about the race for Runner's World in the April 2004 issue, and that piece eventually became the book Duel in the Sun. Alberto and Dick came into the 1982 Boston Marathon as two very different runners from very different backgrounds. Alberto was born in Havana, Cuba, and was raised in the Boston suburb of Wayland. Even when he was young, he was a ferocious competitor. He trained early with the Greater Boston Track Club, but then moved on to become a member of Athletics West, a Nike-sponsored elite running team. And at the time, he was the world's best marathoner. Six months before the Duel in the Sun, Alberto had run a then world record time of 2.08.13 at the New York City Marathon. Dick, on the other hand, was a farm kid from Minnesota, a born entertainer, and he ran for New Balance. And while he was plenty fast in his own right, against Alberto, he was the underdog. Fast forward many years later, and Alberto is now a Nike coach training some of the top runners in the world including marathoners like Olympic bronze medalist Galen Rupp, himself considered America's next great hope in the marathon. And Dick is a motivational speaker, and the pair are good friends. They share a deep respect for each other. As part of this 2012 presentation at the Boston Public Library, we showed footage from the final miles of the race, and I asked Alberto and Dick to narrate what was going through their minds as they gutted out that excruciating final stretch. The film footage started at about mile 20 on Heartbreak Hill, when the two runners have thus far been virtually inseparable, so close that they monitored each other by their shadows. So, this is live footage from the race. The thing that sticks out to me, it's amazing how intermingled the motorcycles are, in spectators, and cars. You never see this today. Bicycles. So, Dick and Alberto, if you wouldn't mind, just as this rolls, give us your thoughts. I don't know if you. Alberto, yeah, this is I don't, coming
1: up, Heartbreak Hill.
0: So, Dick, you're in the lead.
1: Well, I'm in the lead here, but you know, uh, nobody's really in the lead. But I got to tell you something. Pretty soon, you'll see me go over. There's a young man on a on a wheelchair. Now these wheelchairs back then were like right out of the hospital, and I go, <laughs> go over, and I go over, and I pat him on the back, and I say, "Good job, buddy." Now there I go. Now, I, now don't don't no don't play me big hero here because I didn't do it because of that, but I also did it because I'm thinking, okay, if I can go up there, pat this guy on the back, say, "Good job," go up part Break hill, that's got to make Al a little bit nervous. <laughs>
0: It did. It Did it work? <laughs> I noticed you didn't go pat him, Alberto. Yeah. <laughs> but look at the people coming out to, like, touch you guys, Oh, the did, crowds did you were things?
1: unbelievable. You know, back then, Al, if you remember, there was no crowd control back there, no fences to keep the
0: people back, and it's like a tour de France. So, Alberto, what's going through your mind here? You're very close, obviously. Both of you could see one another's shadow because of the cast of the sun. Alberto, what... What were you thinking at this point in the race? Do you remember?
2: Yeah, I mean, I had come from a track background, and I thought that I would be faster at the finish than Dick, so I figured I'm just going to sit on him, let him do all the work, and then I'm going to try and grab all the glory at the end. So, uh, (laughs) But uh, I knew, I thought that I could outkick him, and at the same time, I was hurting really bad, so I just thought, you know what? I just I just got to hang on to him I got to get close don't let him get more than a couple of feet ahead of me have him break the wind or even you know the still air uh, that's in front of you it's it's easier to draft behind somebody so uh yeah pretty much I was just hanging on for dear life and waiting for the finish so I felt if I could do that I could outsprint him and for me I knew I knew Alberto didn't have a a great finishing
1: kick, but I knew it was a lot better one than I had. <laughs> so I was doing everything I could to try to shake him in the hills, and I just, I, as you could see, I just I threw everything but the kitchen sink at
2: him, and I just I couldn't shake him. I think we were both just feeling the heat. It was yeah, it was a seventy two degree day, and and the other bad thing about it was that the wind was in our face. And so as a result, and it was dry, so it sort of wicked the moisture right off of you. So you never had the feeling of really being sweaty, and I think that was why I I miscalculated and hardly, I only took a couple of sips of water and ended up getting real
0: dehydrated. Yeah, the lore is that you only had two, two sips or two cups of water. Right. Why didn't you drink more? There, there were more water stops out there on the course.
2: You know, all my previous marathons had been in New York City, and they'd all been very cold, 46, 47 degrees, and you just didn't need to drink much, and I just... Never really felt that thirsty and well, you know now we know it 20 years later you drink before you feel thirsty you know? but <laughs> They hadn't come up with that idea back no. then yet. so I was waiting till after the race so.
0: And Dick, you were drinking more, and you were noticing that Alberto wasn't
1: correct. Well, you know, when I don't recall ever being any aid state actual aid stations on the course. I remember running by people and and grabbing. You know, people be out there holding cups, and I remember grabbing a cup and I'd look at it, and if it was clear, I drank it. If it looked a little shady, I'd throw it on the ground. And, <laughs> and um, every once in a while, I had somebody from New Balance jump out of the crowd, hand me a water bottle. This was after Alberto and I were by ourselves, and I would take a drink, squirt some on my painter's cap and maybe on my shorts. And then, I remember offering it to Al. I mean, we never talked, but I remember just kind of going like that. And I think maybe one time you might have taken it and squirted some on your head, or?
2: I made you drink some first. <laughs> <laughs> just to make sure. But yeah, there wasn't a lot of water out there.
0: All right, so it's a 2.05 now. There's a few minutes to go. Uh, this The course was slightly different then. You're, you guys are going to turn left on Hereford, and then not turn on Boylston, but turn on, what was the Ring name? Ring Road, it was on called. Ring Road. Um, but Dick, there's, you you're, You started to have a hamstring cramp. It's probably still a little too soon, I think. Yeah, it's
1: coming up here in a little bit. You'll see Alberto, um, you know, all of a sudden, boom, he's in the lead. And I, I just, you know, it was one of those days, I think it was from being dehydrated, and my right hamstring started to cramp, and I just, I couldn't I couldn't really push off of it with the power like I had up to this point now. And, and it was really demoralizing, to be honest with you, to see Alberto, you know, go by me and there was nothing I could do and I remember thinking, oh man, you, you, you know, you, you just gotta you know, w- try to work the knot out and, and, and don't give up now. Don't give up now and, you know, that was, I just kept telling myself and just kept telling myself and then, you know, fortunately I, I actually stepped in a pothole that, which was the best thing that happened to me that day because it jerked my leg and it popped the knot out and I got my stride back so I thought, okay, I figured at that point, you could. I said to myself, Dick, you could probably walk in from here and you're going to finish second. If you finish second and give it your best, you can hold your head high. But if you give up now, you'll regret it for the rest of your life. And uh, I don't know, the good Lord gave me a gift at that point. I'd never had a gear like I had at that point, honestly, ever before or ever since. And um, well, it's, it's coming up here now. It gets pretty exciting.
0: And Alberto, it's, it's been reported that you slightly miscalculated the, the distance at the very end. And you were trying to lay out the, the timing of your kick. Is, is that true?
2: Yeah, I hadn't, uh, I never even went and looked at the finish line. So I uh, all of a sudden, when we came around, the fi- I thought we saw it a quarter mile to go or 800 meters. And, all, and I wasn't looking at any watches or times or anything. And all of a sudden.
0: So you just looked back, Alberto. Yeah. The- and he's fading. So as you made this turn, you thought you had more to go than you really did. Yeah. So at this point, the runners have just taken a right onto Ring Road from Hereford Street. While they had been on Hereford, there was enough distance between Alberto and Dick that a policeman on a motorcycle rode between the two runners. As they made the turn onto Ring Road, it looks like that motorcycle gets in Dick's way a little, although he doesn't break his stride and briefly looks like he's closing on Alberto. The pair are on Ring Road for just a couple of seconds before making a left turn onto Boylston Street on the home stretch. And as they charge down Boylston, it's clear that Dick is probably not going to be able to catch Alberto. Still, Alberto looks back numerous times as he charges toward the finish tape. He holds his arms up as he breaks the tape and then he falls into the arms of two policemen Mm -hmm. two seconds two seconds over two hours and nine minutes and 40 something seconds 26.2 miles two seconds it's nothing but it's but it's not Mm -hmm. nothing it's actually a decent interval you could see how far behind dick you must have known at some point on ring road there that I'm just not gonna catch him. No, or, no, no, or did you continue well, no, to I, think?
1: I tell you what, when um, coming up Perford Street there, and I felt like I was flying, and, um, and when I got around the policeman, and you know what, a lot of, of and, and I wanna make this, and I, after the race, you know, in the heat of the battle, I, I, I can't be for certain that I didn't say, well, gosh, the motorbike's got in my way. But I tell you, later that day, when I had a chance to look at the video, you know, so if they, they didn't really get in my way more than anything, they, they took my mind off it a little bit, but as you can see, when I got around those motorbikes, I did catch back up to Al with about, I don't know, a little over 100 meters to go, and then, I'll tell you what, for him to dig down like he did, to come up with the kick he did, at that point, is, that's the kind of runner he was. I mean, he, I mean really, he, he, he had that potential, and I was digging as deep as I could, and uh, his well was just a little bit deeper, and, um, you know, it, 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 there was, when I look back at that race, people have asked me over the years, well, Dick, what could you have done differently where the end would have been different, where you would have been in front and Al would have been right behind you? And I, I think back, there was nothing that I could have done differently. I mean, Coach Squires uh, told me, he says, Dickie, when you get to the hills, I want you to run as hard as you can up them and even harder down them. And for four miles during that period, I did everything I could to try to break Alberto. And, uh, and I remember coming down the other side of Heartbreak Hill and still couldn't shake him. And then and I got down there, I'm thinking, uh-oh, I'm in trouble now because <laughs> I, I really, I couldn't feel my legs. I mean, I, at that point, I'm, I'm praying to God that my shoes don't come untied because if, if they did and I would have had to stop to tie them, I don't know if I could have got my legs back going again. It was like, like I was on automatic pilot, and um, no, there, there was absolutely nothing I could do differently that day. And you know, that day, I mean, we didn't give ninety percent or ninety-five percent or one hundred and ten percent because that's impossible. But that day, we both, in my estimation, gave it a hundred percent. I mean, I had nothing left at the end.
0: I mean, Al- Alberto, could you believe that he was still there at the end? Could you believe anyone was there? I mean, you're the <laughs> world record holder. Seriously. At- at that yeah. point in your career, you were unquestionably the best the best marathoner in the world. Could you believe that someone was hanging with you that late and Look, running that fast? Yeah, you know,
2: I, I had confidence in myself that I could do certain things, but you never know when you're running against somebody what their abilities are. It doesn't matter what they've done before. It's what are they gonna do on that day? And, and you can be a little off, they can be on, you never know what the outcome is gonna be. So, was I surprised? No, absolutely not, I, I thought, he was gonna be my main competitor. Bill Squires, who had been Bill Rogers' coach and had been mine, uh, my club coach, had now been coaching Dick, and I had heard through my, my sources that <laughs> you had been training in Atlanta, I think, right, or something yeah. like that, and you were coming up periodically to yep. run the hills, yep. and Squires loves the hills. I mean, Squires right. you know, always had us running the hills, and so you know, I, it didn't take, I didn't have to be a rocket scientist. Right. I thought that's gonna be, The key part of their strategy is to break me on the hills, and 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 that's what I just kept saying to myself. You know, you got to be a little aggressive in your thinking, but I just kept thinking, you know what? I just got to stick with him on the hills. That's where he's going to try and break me, and he almost did. And I can remember when we finally got to the top of Heartbreak Hill, (laughs) and I won't use the French that I used then. (laughs) Something to the you 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 now.
0: Your butt is mine. <laughs> you said that out loud, or that was an internal Th- that monologue? That was in my mind. <laughs> Dick, Coach Squires also had you uh, do another unorthodox training method to get ready for the hills. What was that?
1: Well, I, um, about 10 days before the race, um, well, a couple things. Ten, day, 10 days before the race, I came here. And to Boston, I, and I was gonna do the Heartbreak Hill up and down 10 or 12 times or something. And there was a nor'easter moved in on that the morning I was supposed to do it. It was like two feet of snow, the wind was blowing 40 miles an hour. And I'm coach says, Dickie, you can't do that. And I said, Well, I'm doing it. And I remember he got me within about three miles of Heartbreak Hill, and I jumped out of his car after we dug it out of the snowbank. And, and uh, I ran up and down Heartbreak Hills like eight times. I couldn't do it, obviously, as, the way I wanted to, but in my mind, I'm thinking, I know nobody that I'm going to be competing is, is out on a day like this, running to sleep. And so that was one of the things. But the, the other thing that, that I did, I kind of came up with this, and this is going to sound crazy, but... So what I would do is, at, you know, at the end of the day, after my second run of the day, I would sit on a chair like this, and I would pound my quads with my fists as hard as I could, and I got up to where I could do it 2,000 times a day, and I would just beat my quads. And I'm thinking, it's got to toughen me up for the hills. You know, <laughs> you know, maybe it it might have made me, you know, maybe that's where that two seconds came at the end of that, from not being able to do it. You know, you do stuff like that. I, oh, I lied to it anyhow, I'm sure Alberto didn't do that high-tech training I've like boxers do that. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Crazy.
0: You so Alberta, you reached over and held up Dick's arm. I'm not sure everybody understood ex- exactly what what, what that, that was special. referring to, Dick. And I've heard I've heard your version of it. I, I think yeah. I've ever heard it from you, Alberta. What what was that? Um, at the finish line, maybe five minutes later,
2: they always uh, have a, a quick presentation of the winner. They put a laurel wreath on you, and and I think it was uh, Kevin White. I think was the mm-hmm. mayor, Mayor Kevin White, and so. He was there, and um, you know, and he stood on a little platform or whatever, and, and he, he was there, and he, he he raised my hand like that, like as the Boston Marathon champ, and I had the little wreath. And Dick was right here, and I grabbed his arm and and held it up like that too. And and it was really a spur of the moment thing, like I told you, just five miles before, I was wishing bad things on <laughs> <like> him, <laughs> wanting to beat him, and. Uh, Amongst other things, and um, <laughs> but you know, and it wasn't any PR thing or anything like that. And again, I no. was still, you know, probably still wondering if I <laughs> you know, if we were still fighting it out or not. But but you know, I right then I realized what an unbelievable battle that had been. That you know, he had, we had just pushed each other all out, and I was lucky to come out on top. There, it could have been either way at the end. Oh, it's we still a old. very
0: iconic photo. You have the wreath on your head. Uh, its in fact, it was the cover of the book Duel, right, duel right, in the right. Sun," and it, at a glance, talked about athleticism and the duel, but also sportsmanship.
1: Yeah, uh, you know what's so neat too, David, is was when him and I are when Alberto and I are sprinting to the finish line, and you know, Al, Al comes across first. I'm right behind him, and and here were two young American boys that were just drilling each other, trying to put the other person into the ground. Seriously, and that's what I so much love about this sport, is that. When we crossed that finish line, I mean, we literally went into each other's arms. Remember that, Alberto, and we, you know, congratulate each other on a on a race well run. And I mean, I was spent. Alberto was spent. And I mean, it's it's my memory. It's that memory that and and the one where Alberto brought me up with him and, and did that. That's those two memories right there stick in my mind more than any other part of the race for me. You know, it's just uh, it shows the class act that he was then. And you know. And, and even more so today. And you know, people might have thought that Alberto was cocky because, you know, before his first New York City marathon, he said, "Well, I'm going to run sub two ten, and I'm going to, you know, do this, do this, and do that." That isn't cockiness. That's cockiness is if a person says that and can't back it up. But Alberto would say those things, and he backed it up. That's self-confidence. And I never looked at it like that. I, it just made, to me, it just made him that much, it put, it put up that much of a roadblock in front of, him. sometimes myself and other runners that knew we had to go up against him.
0: Before we ended this fascinating recap of the historic race, I just had to ask Dick to tell the story about the painter's cap he wore that day. And you mentioned it yeah. when the video clip was playing, was your painter's cap. Yeah. Coach Squires, I think, gave you that painter's cap that morning? The night before. The night before. So
1: the night before, Coach Squires knocks on my door, hey, Nicky, wear this cap, it's uh, going to be hot tomorrow and cut a bunch of holes in the top and let the heat out. Now, I would never worn a cap in my life other than in the wintertime back in Minasota, yeah sure yeah, bet you betcha uh, <laughs> do. Uh, so anyhow, I, I I put this cap on and, and I, so I get up at the start of the race, I got this goofy looking cap on and, and uh, so the race starts off and away we go. Well. You know, back then the race started at noon, so once we got you know an hour or so into the race, the sun was at our back, and I I didn't really need the cap to keep the sun from being in my eyes, and I, I never wore a cap. I didn't like that the, the bill and sticking out, so I just turned that New Balance cap up like this and stuff. And so anyhow, we get down with the race, and I get off the podium there with Alberto, and the security is trying to get me into the Prudential Garage, and. And I'm kind of like stuck in traffic there, and all of a sudden I feel this little tug on my shorts, and I look over, and, and there's two little boys, I don't know, seven, eight years old, standing there, and one of the little guys says, "Hey, Mr. Beardsley, can I have that new balance cap you got sticking on your head there?" Well, I said, "Sure, you can." So I take it off and put it on his head, and his friend next to him says, "Hey, hey Mr. Beardsley, can I have that sponge you got sticking out of your shorts?" <laughs> and I go, "I go, yeah, sure." So. I pulled the sponge out, I hand it to him, and I'm thinking, man, if these guys have many more buddies, I'm going to be butt-naked here pretty <laughs> So never thought about it again, the cap or anything like that. Well, in 2004, I think it was, John did the story for Runner's World magazine called Duel in the Sun, which eventually led to the book. Well, about a week after Runner's World hit the newsstand, I get an email from a gal. Dear Dick, my son John, avid runner, was reading the latest edition of Runner's World magazine about the duel in the sun and loved the article and loved the pictures. And he called me up after looking at the pictures and says, Mom, do you think Dick would like his cap back? (laughs) (laughs) So honest to goodness, 22 years later, this cap, that now these are running caps that were actually made out of paper stuff, not like the caps today are. I got that cap back in the mail. It still got the little holes in it. I'm not going to put it on my head because when I put it on, when it came, the little paper particles wouldn't fly in every which way. But you know what's really neat? There's the sweat mark from 30 years ago <laughs> still there. Pretty neat, huh? Wow. It just shows you... The kind of people runners are—it really does. You know, this young boy who was now a young man. Before I knew, he dumped it in the garbage as he got, you know, back home. But uh, the fact that he sent that—that's pretty cool. Pretty cool.
2: And I've got the underwear I
3: wore. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That was my 2012 conversation at the Boston Public Library with marathon greats Alberto Salazar and Dick Beardsley about their historic 1982 Boston Marathon. One of the things that makes the story that John Brandt wrote about that race for Runner's World so great is how he reveals how Alberto and Dick's lives diverged after that race. It's one of the best stories we've ever published. In fact, we made it one of our 50 Runner's World selects last year in commemoration of our 50th anniversary. You can find a link to that story on our show page at runnersworld.com audio. Next up, a trailer of sorts from our sibling podcast, Human Race. Okay, we've got some exciting news. I'm very happy to announce that Season 3 of Human Race, Season 3, will launch this Tuesday, April 11th. Many of you already listen to Human Race, but for those of you who don't, it is Runner's World's other podcast, hosted by Rachel Swaby. Human Race dives deep into a single story in every episode. Think about a long-form feature in the magazine, but here we get to hear the voices of the characters and enjoy all the immersive storytelling techniques that audio can bring. If you're not already listening, now is a great time to dive in. And now I've got a special treat, a preview of the first episode of the third season. It's an incredible story of what happened to a man named Richard Sikorsky in the 2015 Chicago Marathon. Take a listen.
4: In October 2015, Richard Sikorsky was in his 60s. He had gray hair and a gray mustache. He was slight, he looked like a runner. He'd run the Chicago Marathon more than a dozen times, signed up for it every year. He had the kind of active lifestyle that so many of us hope to have as we age. But that was before the 2015 race. That same year, Angie Bernadis was running the Chicago Marathon. Her first. She was younger, in her early 30s at that point. She had short brown hair and tattoos covering one arm and both thighs. She was wearing all black, a tank top and shorts, and a bright yellow hat on backwards.
3: She came upon Richard right after mile seven. I was running along and I looked ahead and I saw a big commotion ahead of me. And so I took my earphones off just so I can kind of listen in on what was going on. And I heard somebody yell, um, somebody call 911. So I stopped to see what was going on. And I saw uh, Richard, he was on the ground and so I had stepped in, and I began to try to resuscitate him uh, with mouth-to-mouth. He
4: was resting on the asphalt, on his back, in the middle of the road. Some runners gathered
3: and others streamed around him. Richard didn't have a pulse. Running a marathon, and he's got to be, at least be in his 60s, he should be really healthy. What's going on here? Why, you know, what's happening? Um, and, you know, and... For my professional opinion, based on what I've seen, I was kind of guessing he might have been suffering from a heart attack. Angie is a nurse. Um, so I was kind of concerned, you know what, with him being a runner, I wonder what's wrong with his heart. Eventually, paramedics
4: arrived, and Angie backed away from the fit man
3: with silver hair. When she left
4: him, he still didn't have a pulse.
3: I figured it was the best thing at that time was just for me to continue to run and just pray for him. And, um that's kind of what I did the whole run was just pray for him and once I finished the run, the first thing I did was just like look at my phone to see if there was anything online that I could find about, you know, what happened and She found nothing. She wasn't sure if her mouth to mouth made any difference
4: at all. But that was Marathon Day. The night before, Richard Shikorsky was still very much alive. In fact, he was milling around the race expo.
5: Yeah, he'd picked up his bib and shirt for the next day's race but he wasn't sure if he was going to run it.
4: Cindy, you know that expo well?
5: I do indeed. I've run this marathon 4 times and spectated 5.
4: Runners World readers will recognize your name. This is
5: Cindy Kozma,
4: based in Chicago, and on the podcast to help tell our first story of season 3. And to do that, let's go back to the expo.
5: Richard was 66 in 2015. He'd run the Chicago Marathon so many times he'd lost count. Typically, He'd prepare by following a plan from Runner's World. True story. Or a plan he found in a running book. Richard had a shelf full of them, written by running gurus like Jeff Galloway and Hal Higdon.
4: But in 2015, he was a bit off his game. Life had been busier than usual. He'd had extra projects around the house, and he was tending to rental properties he owned around the city.
5: He'd been able to squeeze in a few training runs a week, but it was by no means his usual ramp up. The longest run he'd done in the weeks beforehand? 12 miles. I mean, all those books and those runner's world plans, they usually recommend at least 20. Even that 12-miler didn't go very well. Here's Richard's daughter, Anna. It wasn't till short time before that he started feeling more tired and, um, you know, the chest pains, like it was harder to get up and go do things. Um, but we did not think We didn't think that it was this bad, no. He didn't, he himself didn't think it was this bad, and... Richard and his family thought maybe 66 is when your body slows down.
4: But Richard went to the expo anyway.
5: He wasn't really planning to run the race. He picked up his bib and his shirt. Still not planning to run. But you know how expos are. Six months of training all leading up to one event. For one person, there's nervous energy, excitement and then multiply that by the 45,000 people who run this race every year.
4: There's a lot of joy at a marathon expo for sure.
5: So Richard is weaving through people in booths selling energy gels and compression socks. There's music blaring in the background. He's at the expo alone. He usually goes with his wife, but she didn't join him that year. So he's people watching. I mean, the place is packed with runners and their families. And he notices this one couple. They're young. They have a young kid. uh, They must have been in their 30s. And... You know, Richard, he's 66, so he's looking at them, and they're looking just young and vibrant and, and alive, and he really wants to, to be around them and, and soak up some of that energy. So he starts wondering if, you know, maybe he shouldn't run the race after all. I mean, he knew he hadn't trained well enough to run his best time, but he figured if he took it easy, enjoyed himself, sure, he could cover 26.2.
4: And so the decision was made.
5: As soon as Richard left the expo, he called his wife. He told her, change of plans. It's pasta for dinner.
4: The marathon, it's on. Now, we don't know what would have happened if he had shrugged his shoulders at that young couple, if he had watched the marathon on TV instead of participating in it. But we do know what happened on the path he did choose. That last-minute decision to run the 2015 Chicago Marathon was perhaps the most consequential of his whole life. I'm Rachel Swaby,
5: and I'm Cindy Kuzma,
4: and this is Human Race. On Human Race, we tell stories about runners and the world of running. This week begins with Richard Szykorski and a marathon cut short, but we tend to think that a man on the ground without a pulse, that's the end. But where Richard's race stopped, another one began. This is the story of one man's collapse and how that violent fall and the stillness afterwards compelled people to leap into action, all with the distant hope that they could save his life.
0: Again, that was a preview from the first episode of our new season of Human Race. You can hear what happens next this Tuesday, April 11th. In the meantime, I've got host Rachel Swaby here to tell us a bit about what's in the works this season. Hey, Rachel. Hi, David. So, in addition to having a child, what have you been up to (laughs) since the end of season two?
4: (laughs) A lot of things. Um, I've taken a lot of trips, actually. Uh, Recently, flew to Toronto and Dallas, and we're working on stories in Michigan, California, Colorado, South Carolina.
0: Wow, you've been all over the country.
4: Yeah, it's been... It's been really exciting. And, you know, I was on maternity leave at the end of the last season, and these stories have really helped me get back into running. I had to stop, obviously, when my son was born, but um, they have really helped nudge me out the door and get me back on the road and inspire me to work harder.
0: I know you don't want to give too much away, but can you tell me just a little bit about something that's in the pipeline, something specific about one of the stories?
4: Yeah. So I'll give you a couple little details. We have a story coming up on a woman who broke the world record in the marathon at age 13 and then she disappeared from the running world. Um, We have a story with livestock, a story about running through alcoholism and the story of a very unlikely friendship. Lots of good stuff.
0: They sound like great stories. Is there some kind of theme? that connects everything in season three? Uh,
4: No theme, but this season, more than any season prior, we've been getting stories from listeners, and several of these stories have turned into episodes. It's really wonderful, and going forward, I think this is how it should be.
0: Yeah, it's great. So how can people subscribe?
4: You could subscribe on your podcast app, Stitcher, iTunes, wherever you've downloaded The Runner's World Show, Human Race is there, too. And if you subscribe today, the rest of the first episode will be there for you to listen to on Tuesday.
0: All right. I can't wait to get to work on some of these stories and to share them with our listeners. So thanks, Rachel. Thanks, David. And now it's time for The Kick with producer Brian Dalek and reporter Kit Fox.
6: So it's been a few weeks. I've been teasing him that it seems like he's on a vacation every weekend recently. Kit Fox is back for the kick this week. I know you've been working. You've been going to some interesting places. One place you haven't been is Prague, (laughs) and good transition there, to um, a big half marathon this past weekend where, one, there were some American names in the field that we'll get to, but some world records fell in that race. It was a half marathon in Prague.
7: This okay, so this kind of came out of nowhere. I think, twenty uh, three year old Kenyan, her name is Joycelyn Jepkoski, broke the half marathon world record. She ran in in one hundred four fifty six. But what's crazy about her race, not just how fast that is. I mean, actually, there's like a lot of things that are crazy. But we'll start Mm -hmm. with the fact that within that race, she also unofficially broke world records in the 10K, the 15K, and the 20K. Can't believe she didn't go for the 5K. I (laughs) know. Why not? You know, keep going. But uh, so so this is crazy because it's like I I don't know if I've ever PR'd in a different distance while Um, running a longer
6: distance. I guess most people, they would only be able to do that for the most part, like doing while running a ten k, running a really fast first half and running a great five k yeah. and a ten k. That's that's yeah. where you might see that more often for most people. But for Joycelyn, uh, a crazy run. That's a four fifty six per mile pace for that race.
7: Yeah, and so she beat the previous world record by ten seconds. That was at one o five o six, and that was set last February. So this record keeps falling. But also, I want to talk about two big American names right in yeah. this race. Yeah, first, let's
6: talk about on the women's side. She's actually on our May cover.
7: Yeah, May cover model uh, Jordan Hesse. Um, out of the nike's oregon project so she actually had a great race she took sixth overall and she pr'd in 107.55, and this is a really good sign because in just about two weeks she's going to be running the boston marathon
6: right and that's her debut at the
7: distance yeah so we're really excited to see what she can do on the men's side another nike oregon project man galen rupp Uh, He had kind of a tough race. He said afterwards that his foot was hurting him, but he ran it in Mm -hmm. 101.59. So, you know, it's a little concerning because he's also running the Boston Marathon. This will be his first Boston Marathon. Right. Um, Hopefully that foot injury can go away. Got about two weeks again to recover, and we will see both of them in Boston. Exactly.
6: And and just one final thing on Jordan, that time for her, that 107.55, That's third all-time American that puts her behind Dina Caster and Molly Huddle. Pretty good company. Good company for her as she goes into her first marathon.
7: Okay, Brian. Switching Mm -hmm. subjects completely, I have a really important question to ask you. Okay. Summer's coming up. Weather's Mm -hmm. getting warmer. It is. I want to ask you right now, Mm -hmm. will you be my designated tick check buddy? Wow, that's a very
6: personal question, Mm -hmm. Kit. Um, You know, we we run some trails here. Are we at that point in our relationship? I don't know. Okay. Maybe we'll get there. A okay. few more kicks and we might we might be there on mm-hmm. the tick check. Um but um that's a very good point because ticks will be very high this year out in the world, especially in the northeast.
7: Yeah, so we just published a story that goes into the fact that all the conditions this winter, which was a very mild winter, Mm -hmm. have made it ripe for a high tick season.
6: Yeah, and we based this off of our reporter, got in touch with Rick Ostfeld. He is a scientist at the Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies, and and he studies stuff like ticks and mice. So when there are a high number of mice out in the world, like last year, that means that there is a big feeding ground for ticks, and then they can reproduce, and then that leads to a lot more that are going to be coming up this
7: year. So basically, I guess what that means for us, when we go lunch run on our trails, Mm -hmm. um, we've got some beautiful trails. Could be a lot of ticks out there. Uh, So what were the tips? Well, one thing...
6: you you kind of are all over the place when you run trails like stuff flies at you because they just see you out in their element like out on the edges so stay in the middle of the trail kit and then nothing yeah. no ticks are gonna fly at you no squirrels nothing like that
7: <laughs> squirrels have flown at
6: me before. they they have um, and then if you're looking for a bug spray or a repellent a twenty to thirty percent DEET spray is what you want to go for it can also like cover your shoes in certain bug sprays to keep them away. Um, But other just things like you said, like do a tick check when you get back from your job. Well, actually, just you can do that yourself in a mirror, check places like your armpits and your, you know, underneath your knees. They might even get into your clothes. So if they get in your clothes and you're worried about that or you just think throw them in the dryer for 10 minutes on high, that heat is going to kill any ticks that might have like smuggled their way into your life because no one wants to deal with the possibility of Lyme disease. And if you do see a tick on you and you are trying to get it out, um, we have a great video on our website. We have an expert showing you the proper way to get that tick out of your body. So there's no issue there. We'll put that on our episode page at runnersworld.com audio.
7: Sticking with the trail theme, Brian, this is your expertise. Um, yeah. I, a crazy race happened this weekend. What happened? I don't know if I've become the the Barkley Marathons expert on staff. That's what we're gonna talk about
6: yeah. here. It happened this past weekend, but I'm certainly the most like interested in it at this <laughs> point because I was on Twitter all weekend following it because that's really the only way okay. to follow this race. Okay,
7: so what is, for those that don't know, what is the Barkley Marathons? So yeah, we covered
6: this, I think it was on the first kick we did last year. We have a human race episode, episode seven that you should check out. Um, I went down there last year for the 2016 race, so that gives you all the details, but. In essence, it's this under the radar trail race. It's 100 plus miles, so five loops of about 20 miles, but it really becomes more, um, it's really meant to disorient you. You do the trails um, at night, in the day they reverse on you so everything it's different it's it's kind of like a scavenger hunt in a sense or a treasure hunt as you have to find pages of books out on the course to like prove you stayed on
7: the course limits and there are people in the world that find this fun <laughs>
6: exactly i'm not pe- one of them 40 people every year sign up to do this okay. and, and probably a thousand are applying to get into this very select field
7: And there's a crazy stat I saw going around on Twitter that more people have summited Everest, like a lot more people have summited Everest than Mm -hmm. have finished this race. Uh, So the race happened this weekend. Mm -hmm. Who finished? How many people finished?
6: Yeah, and... Keep in mind, many years, no one finishes, and that almost happened this year. But one person came in, became the 15th individual ever to complete it. His name is John Kelly. Um, He's from Washington, D.C. I saw him at last year's race, and he got out onto the fifth loop, which in itself is an achievement because that's more than two days of climbing and trekking and running throughout this. And, um, yeah, he came in at fifty nine hours and thirty minutes. Oh my word. So I mean, that's that's almost like a photo finish for himself to get there just under the sixty hour cutoff.
7: Yeah. So they give they give the runner sixty hours to finish the five loops, um, and only one of them was able to do it. One of the things that I thought was most interesting, just to give people a sense of how hard this race is. Mm-hmm. Um, we're big fans of Michael Wardian. Yeah,
6: and, I, and I, was, I was speaking with him all
7: weekend yeah. as well. He's uh, considered you know, one of the greatest trail runners, at least in the U.S. Um, trail ultra holds a ton of world records. I mean, the dude is a beast. He ran Barkley for the first time right. this year. Uh, you'd expect someone kind of of his caliber mm-hmm. to do pretty well. Mm-hmm. What did he do? He did
6: complete one loop. One-fifth of the race. One-fifth of the race, and then he basically he had the DNF after that because he didn't hit the first loop cutoff limit of 13 hours to continue on any further. He did his first loop in 15 hours. There was actually a hashtag going on Twitter, hashtag find Mike Wardian. They put his picture on a milk carton. And <laughs> people were concerned. They couldn't believe that um, Mike didn't get through. And I spoke with him Monday morning about his experience, and, and he loved it. Um, he said he got lost between books one and two, so very early. He got he got dropped by the leaders. Then once they got away from him, he he lost his sense of direction. And, and real didn't know quick, where just to, go. to
7: explain that for people who don't know, Brian says books one and two. Uh, there were 13. You have to find thirteen books. Yeah. Them, so in the in, in the loop, there's thirteen books. A guy like Warden, world record holder. You said he's super happy mm-hmm. that he finished one loop. Um, which, you know, fits into my theory that these people are crazy.
6: Yeah. um, He said he really wishes he was still out there on Monday morning, (laughs) like trying to finish that fifth loop. But he he saw it as a learning experience. Um, He knows if he gets a chance to go back, if Gary Cantrell, the race director, asks him to come back in a year or two he knows the course a little bit better now and he knows what maybe not to do and maybe he can get to that second loop or the fun run, which is three loops, which in itself is an achievement. Only four people did the fun run this year out of 40.
7: Yeah, it's called the fun run. So, Brian, I think we all know what this means. Um, I should also
6: say it was like a downpour in the final morning of the race, just to make it even easier.
7: Mm -hmm. So, if you... Finish one loop of the Barclay Marathon mm-hmm. in your life. Lifetime achievement. <laughs> Lifetime achievement. How, what should I give you? Maybe oh, I'll give you twenty dollars. Twenty. Yeah. Finish one loop. I'll give you twenty.
6: You know, Kit. All I would want from something like that is is a hearty pat on the back because that's yeah. what that and, and that's what I'm learning about Barclay. That's what it's all about. It's that. Getting to that mental state of knowing you pushed to your outer limits, in a
7: sense. That's part of the Tick Check Buddy code. <laughs> yeah. So I'll be there for you. A pat on the back and a, official, and a, and a look at the back. official Tick Check Buddy. Yeah, yeah, thank you. All right, Kit, good
6: having you back on the kick.
0: Thank you, Brian. Okay, that's it for this week's show. Thank you to all of you who've given us ratings and reviews. We really appreciate it. I'm David Willey, editor-in-chief of Runner's World. This week's show was produced by Sylvia Ryerson, Rachel Swaby, Christine Fennessy, and Brian Dalek. Be sure to join us next week for my interview with another iconic marathoner, Catherine Switzer. This year marks the 50th anniversary of her historic run as the first registered female runner in the Boston Marathon. You won't want to miss it. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.